You're listening to Thunder Quack Podcast Network. Hello there and welcome to the very first episode of the Epic Marvel Podcast, the podcast where we are talking about the Marvel Universe one epic collection at a time. I'm your host, Curtis Findlay, and with me today is going to be um, one of my regular co-hosts. Uh, why don't you introduce yourself, James? Hey, everybody. It's James. Uh, joining uh, Curtis here to talk about uh, a new favorite of mine, the Marvel Epic Collections. Now, James, you're going to be joining us for all of my Iron Man episodes, right? Yes, and maybe uh, a couple other here and there where needed. Iron Man for now, because the Epic Collection sort of started off with a few lines, and as the Epic Collection added more lines, we will also add more lines to our episodes. And uh, what was the other one you're going to join us on later on down the road? Uh, I believe it was Silver Surfer. Oh yeah, excellent. Yeah, that should be really great. So why don't we just introduce ourselves a little bit um, for the sake of ourselves, because we kind of just met through uh, the Marvel Masterworks message board, and so. Um, it'd be interesting to hear a little bit about your story, which you sent me in an email. Um, but I'd love to hear more about that, and I'll, I'll tell you uh, some of my story as well um, for the sake of our listeners, uh, just to find out a little bit about why, how we got into comics and uh, why we love them so much. I uh, actually got into comic books. Um, I'm 33 years old right now. Um, I've been into them since I was probably about 9 or 10 years old. And... Uh, I actually had um, a little brother uh, who got me into comics, and he never was like a became a hardcore like me. But it was just kind of one of those things that, uh, you know, you change your interests a million times when you're a kid. And uh, right. I just saw him, and uh, he was actually reading um, Iron Man's a lot when uh, he would always go to like uh, garage sales or flea markets and pick up um, some of the issues, kind of right after about what we're going to be getting into today. So I'm a uh, pretty familiar with like that era of the character and um that kind of just led to me being into x-men uh which of course if you know if you were a kid in the early 90s everybody watched the x-men cartoon read x-men comics uh spider-man and then just that kind of turned into just a general love of everything marvel and later on um i really got into the uh the official handbook of the marvel universe and like um things like that because I just uh, I just always liked how everything connected and it was all part of like one bigger narrative so you could be reading about the X-Men and then that might cross over into uh, like a Avengers appearance somewhere so that it always made me interested to like learn more about what, what else was out there and uh, here I am you know 20 years later still buying comics <laughs> <laughs> your your story is um similar to mine I'm I'm 35 so we're roughly the same age and yeah. probably got into comics around the same time too um, for me it uh, it wasn't the Marvel handbooks but it was the Marvel Universe trading cards that got me into comics 
because a bunch of my friends at school, this is when I was around, I don't know, eight, eight or nine years old. Oh, yeah. Um, they, they all start, started buying these cards. It was the, the very first series of trading cards. And I didn't know, I mean, I knew, of course, who Spider-Man was, because how could you not? But um, I didn't know any of these other characters that, were, that they were passing around. So a friend of mine gave me my very first Marvel Universe trading card. It was Aunt May. <laughs> <laughs> One of the best, right? So because rookie I guess card? she's... Uh, <laughs> no, I don't think uh, someone that old could be a rookie, but uh, um, she... Uh, it it was an interesting card. I I loved it because it was so different. I had I had no interest in hockey cards, although I had a bunch, um, because I I don't know that's just what you collected back then. Yep. Um, but uh, I got that one, and then my second card was Quasar. And so b- uh, between the two of those cards, it's like these are really really cool. I want to get them all. And through that, gained a gained my knowledge of the Marvel Universe even before I had my very first comic book which I got when I was uh, I think it was my 10th birthday party Um, someone gave me a copy of Web of Spider-Man number 60 and um, and I was amazed because uh, in that comic Spider-Man could fly and Spider-Man could shoot laser beams out of his eyes I was like I didn't know Spider-Man could do all of this stuff and now I know that that was just like a flash in the pan in his history but uh, it was pretty cool when you're 10 right that's a, that's a future and podcast. <laughs> it is. It's going to come up in like three episodes, actually. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, so then, like like yourself, I got into X-Men. Spider-Man and X-Men were kind of my thing. And uh, I never read really any Iron Man at all. So this podcast, when I was reading through this volume of Iron Man, is really my first extended look at this character at all. So... It's going to be a really interesting conversation with your knowledge of Iron Man from when you were growing up with my kind of coming at this new. Um, I think it'll be really neat to hear. Yeah, and like I was saying too, I mean, I'm kind of familiar with the stuff uh, that came after this. Like, I think that was the the second Michelini run. So I know I think he, he had one before this. But um, yeah, all this all this was pretty much new territory for me too. Well, let's uh, let's talk a little bit about what the Epic Collection is, just in case people who are tuning into this podcast don't know, and how it relates to a podcast here. Um, the Epic Collection is a series of, of big, fat books that Marvel's putting out right now that uh, the intention is to collect the, the entire runs of some of Marvel's longest-running comic book titles, like Amazing Spider-Man, Fantastic Four, um, Iron Man... Starting from issue one, going to who knows when. They haven't really set an end date. But the key thing about the Epic Collection is that the volumes are not published in chronological order. So rather starting from volume one, which has been done a million times for books like Fantastic Four, they're starting in the middle with material that really hasn't been uh, republished um, or reprinted uh, very much at all. Uh, and then they're 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 hopping around. So the very first volume of Iron Man that we're talking about today is actually volume ten, from 1982 to 1983. And then I think I think the second volume, off the top of my head, the one here, that came out with after this was uh, 
the war games stuff from like 91 92 like around that area oh yeah was that one called yeah. stark wars um uh war, war games uh the john burns stuff they came out pretty close to each other and then after that they went all the way back to volume one and so they're they're really literally jumping all over the place um and the six titles that they started with are um iron man thor amazing spider-man um captain america and fantastic four did i forget one? Oh, and avengers and so those are the six titles that this podcast is going to start with as well and my idea for the podcast is that each episode will tackle one volume of an epic collection in the order that they were released so in this episode we're talking with the very first volume of the any epic collection which was this volume of iron man the enemy within and in the next episode we'll jump over to thor and i will have a different co-host who will be joining me for all of the thor episodes i've actually been um I've been kind of out of the current comic book scene for a while, but I was really hardcore into the essential line of trade paperbacks. And those were, I mean, I'm sure you're familiar with those, but for anybody listening, those were basically the epic collections, but they were done in black and white. Uh, Because when they were, when the program was launched in like the mid 1990s, I believe the, uh, the restoration technology to put that much material in color and make it affordable just it wasn't there so uh, but I thought they were really cool I always was like a more bang for your buck kind of guy when it came to comics um, Curtis I know you were saying how you were into the trading cards for a while there and um, yeah I, I love those trading cards too because you know as a kid I could only afford so many comic books and I, I didn't have easy access to a comic store so I would go to the grocery store and, you know, if they didn't have the comic I wanted, I would buy the trading cards and I could actually, I could learn about comics, like what was going on with these other characters without actually reading the issues. So I was always like interested in reading like just as much information as I possibly could. Like this was, you know, obviously days before the internet because now you can just find it anywhere. <laughs> yeah, that was our Wikipedia back then was, yeah, was these trading cards and the Marvel Universe handbook. So, so pretty amazing stuff. Yeah, so anyways, like the essentials that that like that really hit a sweet spot for me because that's like uh 70s, 80s stuff like my my personal that's my like my favorite time for Marvel comics and I just think there's a lot of a lot of good stuff in there. And um when I found out that the essentials program was ending in favor of the epics like i hated it because i had so yeah. many of these and you know ev- everybody hates change until i actually kind of started reading about these and figuring out like uh, what the plan was like it, it sounded odd like why are they jumping all over the place like that's weird that's stupid now like the more i'm reading into it and like i picked up a couple of them i'm like this is way better than the essential program so <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah. It's it's really great. Um, and I've been buying the volumes as they've come out, and I think we're over fifty volumes of epic collections now, and they're just wonderful. Um, you just get a little snapshot of Marvel history, and they're they're roughly around five hundred pages or so, and uh, and they're beautiful. They're well put together, and I've um, like you, I haven't been in in like up to date with buying recent Marvel comics. I sort of stopped around um, Avengers Disassembled. There was kind of a shift in the way that they started writing that I just didn't 
hop on board with. So same. Here. Um, yeah, and, and but this is fantastic. Going back and read like there's there's such a history of comics that I can. I'll probably be spending the rest of my life revisiting old Marvel stuff that I've never read before. And if they keep putting it out, then I'll just keep on picking it up. Yep. And that's the cool thing, too, because we've all, I mean, everybody, you know, well, pretty much everybody, we've all read Born Again, Daredevil. We've all read, you know, the X-Men, Dark Phoenix saga. Yeah. So it's kind of cool that these are putting stuff out there that's not talked about that much or it's not really revisited or, like, romanticized in comic book lore. So yeah. I'm I'm discovering a lot of stuff that I never knew I would have liked because I just never even really knew it was existed or any good. So that's another big plus about this epic program. Yeah, and one of the downsides is that um, when you have a, a title that's been running for 40 years, there are periods that aren't great. And those are generally the ones that haven't been collected because no one really cares for them right so we do have some volumes in here that are like yeah not not as as good um but as we kick those not as good volumes out right at the beginning because they're trying to focus on the volumes that are not as like the areas that are not collected we're going to get into better and better material as we as the volumes keep on coming out because they're saving the best for last yep and that's that's another cool thing too is that because these things are jumping all over the place if we were going by the old model of the essentials and say you get i'm not going to pick on any particular title here but say you just get in a in a rut and you don't want to sit three volumes you know through a rut while you know these are coming out once or twice a year you want to kind of get to the good stuff so it's a little little bit for everybody it's all over the place and it's it's just it's fun to see like just guessing what's going to come out next and what's going to be in it that's that's part of the fun too We asked some of the members of the Marvel Masterworks message board to ask a few questions relating to this particular epic collection, or epic collections in in general, and we got a couple of responses here. Faust33 wanted to comment a little bit about just the epic collection in general. Um, He says, uh, what was the first epic you saw or purchased? The first one I got, I believe... I think it was the Iron Man War Games, and that was uh, the early 90s John Byrne, John Romita Jr. Iron Man. Cool. And was that... Yeah, it was either either that or uh, Captain America Dawn's Early Light. It was like, and if if they were bought at the same time, it was like within a week of each other, so... And why did you pick those ones? Um, I think I just found a deal on Amazon, and um, I was already kind of bummed that like uh, the essentials line was ending so I just wanted to see what these were about and uh, really enjoyed them and then here we are nice. <laughs> now I have every single one now so <laughs> I'm a completist <laughs> um, are you collecting the, the Star Wars ones as well or just the Marvel ones uh, just the Marvel ones so I'm, I guess I'm not technically a completist the Star Wars <laughs> stuff that's a little that's a little too much because I think they have they must be pretty close to the like sheer number of marvel releases these it seems like they're coming out with one every month or two so yeah there's plenty of material there that's for sure yeah um my first one was um 
the volume one of Amazing Spider-Man. I actually got it for my birthday a few years ago, and I had already been in interested in the Epic Collection at that point, but I hadn't just hadn't bothered picking any up. So I got that one, and was amazed at the just the quality and the material. So I then started picking them all up, and uh, yeah, I think I'm missing just two Thor volumes. But other than that, I'm up to date. I'm just collecting the Marvel ones as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, Faust33 asks another question. What was your reaction to seeing the new Epic format? And uh, you mentioned briefly uh, a little while ago that um, you're, you weren't thrilled because it canceled your favorite line of comics. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was, it was just ignorance on my part. I just didn't want to see things change but yeah we kind of went over that so yep and my yeah my reaction is was great i i um i kind of got out of buying superhero comics once i stopped buying the individual issues in early 2000 or so but then when the, the epic collection was announced i was like oh yeah this is actually a format that i could get on board with i was way too late for masterworks and essentials there's just too many volumes and it seemed overwhelming to start collecting those, but this one, I got behind, so I decided to give it a go, and I'm glad I did because it's fantastic. Oh yeah, and I know what you mean about like uh, the masterworks because um, some of those are out of print and going for hundreds of dollars, and it's yeah. just way too intimidating. And they're at a much higher price point too. So I, I mean, it's cool for like the people that do like them, but the epics, like, I mean, it's just you get so much for your money and you it do. just you know it hits all the sweet spots for me yeah yeah it's really great my only issue was that i uh i, I bought all of these epic collections and because i got spider-man the volume one first i said i'll just read all the volume ones and then wait for the volume twos to come out and, but meanwhile i'm still buying these epic collections and now i have like 50 volumes that i haven't read because i i'm <laughs> waiting for volume two and so part of making this podcast is to kind of force me to start reading these volumes because I know that if I wait they'll never ever get read yeah and I think right now too they're kind of they're kind of hitting a like a schedule like not like a concrete set in stone schedule but um after the first year or so yeah they started coming out with all the volume ones of all the books with you know a couple exceptions here and there then they'd release a, a random volume and then we're starting to see now that they're coming out with a lot of volume twos. And then I know next year we're seeing some volume threes. So uh, the puzzle's coming together. I think uh, as at the time we're recording this, they've released uh, two Avengers volumes or two or three. And then um, we have a volume three coming out uh, within the next year. So we'll have uh, volumes one through four of Avengers. Yeah, that's the and entire know, like, 1960s us, output there. Yeah, and then like Spider Man, we have three consecutive volumes, so it's it's pretty cool. They're they're it's starting to look like a complete puzzle for some of these lines. Yep, yeah, and it was hard to imagine that when they first announced it because it's just like, what is that going to look like? It'll take forever to get things going, but uh, the way they're doing it is they're kind of clumping the releases together. So so Spider Man's really been focusing on like the '90s and. And yeah, having three consecutive volumes in the '90s, like people don't mind that now, and they're willing to, uh, to 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 go with it. And it's kind of a neat surprise to see what gets released next.
So why don't we jump into our epic collection for uh, for this one? Um, we're going to talk about Iron Man Epic Collection Volume Ten: The Enemy Within, which covers 1982 to 1983. And I think to kind of frame this with some uh, context, we'd probably have to go back to about 1970 to talk a little bit of Marvel history and Iron Man history. Uh, does that does that jive with your notes, or do you want to go back even further than that? Um, we can start wherever. Well, I think that um, an important distinction to make is uh, in 1970s, about the time when they were really starting to loosen up on the comic code, which was really kind of... Um, it, it had a lot of limitations on what could and couldn't be in comics. Um, Marvel kind of followed this code and uh, in the in the in the early 70s when they loosened up um, they started seeing a lot more um, uh, like horror characters like Tomb of Dracula and Werewolf by Night started coming up because you couldn't have those kind of monsters in comics before that um, you got more more anti-heroes were coming out like the Punisher and uh, Wolverine and um, Conan had his own book at that point and, and uh, the themes just generally got more mature and a lot darker in tone. And why I bring that up is because the way, the reason why it relates to Iron Man um, is because they started um, changing his character to showing some of his flaws. Um, and we, we saw that mostly in his alcoholism, which uh, if you know anything about Iron Man history, one of his most prominent stories is Demon in the Bottle which came out a few years before this volume. Um, and the ramifications from that uh, play heavy in this particular volume because Tony has a relapse. And, uh, and that's kind of the main theme of, of Denny O'Neill's Iron Man. Um, uh, let me see, there was something else I was going to say. I was listening to an interview with Denny O'Neill on Kevin Smith's podcast, Fat Man on Batman. It's a three-part interview. It's fantastic. And in there, Danny O'Neill talks about how, um, well, first of all, O'Neill himself, he struggled a lot with substance abuse while he was working at Marvel. So he kind of didn't like how the, uh, how the original demon of the bottle was, was wrapped up um, because Tony Stark kind of just, uh, decided to go go cold turkey and stopped being an alcoholic and Denny O'Neill said that's kind of not how it happens for a lot of people so he brought the relapse into this into his storyline and it took a completely different turn um, as we'll talk about a little bit further on um, is there any other context that you want to share yeah, James? As, as far as um, I'm, I'm not too familiar with like the first uh, David Michelini run, but one thing I did notice about um, about Denny O'Neill's stuff is it is it was a lot a lot more realistic. Like it's a, it's a lot more raw, whereas uh, in the uh, in the David Michelini issues, he's it's kind of like a like a cartoon portrayal of a drunk. Whereas right. whereas in, in a lot of these issues, and you know we'll we'll be getting to that. It's it, there's some pretty serious consequences so he, he kind of really really digs into it and um yeah well i think his his actual real life experience 
shows itself in his writing. Like, you could almost... Hearing him talk about his own life, um, how it was back in that time, you, you feel like he, he's putting himself in Tony Stark. So I think that's really important for the realism, and it, it totally comes through. It's really oh, yeah, great. Definitely. And as far as, um, like, like Denny O'Neill himself, I'm actually... I'm not too familiar with most of his work, only because I'm a Marvel guy. I know that he's he, he's definitely more known for his DC work, but um, right. Well, and he uh, one of his most famous stories because he uh, he totally revamped um, Green Lantern and Green yep. Arrow by putting them in a book together. And one of the famous stories there is Speedy, Green Arrow's sidekick. Um, he gets addicted to uh, heroin. And there's that there's that story, so he yeah these are themes that he he tackles in a lot of his stories. And another thing, because he's also uh, he's also responsible for the uh, the big uh, Wonder Woman uh, like makeover in the '70s, where he takes away her powers. And, right. Uh, just kind of kind of one thing I've always noticed about his stuff is that he's always into just like uh, kind of blowing up the status quo, and then and then you know kind of fumbling around with the pieces and seeing what happens. So yeah. he's he's an interesting writer. He's actually somebody that, as a result of this, I'm kind of looking forward to reading some more of his stuff. Totally, yeah, and I'm sure there will be plenty of opportunity. Um, Goat Goblet says about the enemy within. Um, a major theme of this book is Tony Stark's alcoholism. Um, in fact, this is where the title comes from. I believe I read somewhere that Denny O'Neill had his own battles with addiction that he brought to his Iron Man run. It, uh, it would be interesting to bring up stories or characters in this epics that have um, in the epics that have influence on the movies. For instance, this book contains the first appearance of Obadiah Stane, who was the villain in the first Iron Man movie. Rhodey puts on the armor for the first time, a path that eventually leads him to becoming War Machine. And then he says, I'm really looking forward to hearing this podcast and being a part of it for episode six. That's that's right, Goat Goblet's gonna be my special guest for uh, my Captain America episodes. So, yeah, you want to talk a little bit about um, these characters who have been in the movies? I guess we could talk about Obadiah Stane a little bit and uh, just the fact that these epics sort of... I I believe that they're releasing volumes that sort of relate to the movies in some way, just to kind of piggyback on publicity and such. Yeah, like... um... With with this volume, uh, Stain is definitely he's he's the guy behind uh, Tony Stark's entire downfall, and uh, yeah, as far as like his um his importance in the comics. Now, this was really his only major storyline, and uh, they kind of they kill him off after Tony you know wins his uh re- battle for redemption and uh and whatnot. But he's always had he always had that you know. Uh, as like a notch in his belt, he was the guy who took down Tony Stark. But um, remained pretty like they they would occasionally refer to him in the comics later on. But um, I don't think his legacy was really cemented until they adapted him into a character for the movie. And then I know that they, I think they brought his son into the comics. And uh, yeah, I figured he's, they would. He's, he's a good villain. Yeah, I'm always interested in the in the guys that uh can fight the heroes like without just fists. Like he really wages uh, psychological warfare against Tony, and that's what ultimately takes him down. Yeah, and I think we can uh, probably go into a little bit more detail with him once we get into the the issues that he appears in. Um, yes. I did find it an odd choice when they announced 
the Iron Man movie that Obadiah Stane was going to be the villain. Um, because, like you said, this is his. He only has this one story, really, and it's not even one of the better known Iron Man stories. So I guess um, it's kind of a. In on one hand, I would have liked to see a, a more prominent villain, but on the other hand, um, having a villain that nobody really knew or had heard about actually let Iron Man have his origin story and that be the focus, and it didn't have to shoehorn this huge villain villain story into it as well yeah they definitely and they took um they took a little bit of uh liberties with the character as far as making him part of tony's business as opposed to taking it over from the outside right but um overall like the the general and like intent of the character stays the same so like i i had no problems with that i think um with what they were trying to accomplish with the first movie um they kind of needed a villain like that i I think if it was just another traditional superhero movie, it might have not been as successful. Right. Let's talk about this volume in particular. Um, it covers Iron Man numbers uh, 158 to 177, plus the Iron Man annual number 5. There are kind of uh, kind of three portions of this book. Uh, it there are it starts with um, some fill-in episodes with and the annual, and uh, because I, this is kind of like the transition between um, the end of the Michelini run and then the beginning of Danny O'Neill's run here. So yeah, there, are, there it starts off a little bit on the rough side, and then it gets into Tony's kind of descent as he hits the bottle has his relapse and then the last the last third of the book is um i guess this is a spoiler alert for a 30 year old comic um <laughs> Rhodey <laughs> Rhodey uh ends up taking up the the iron man mantle and it's uh we should probably point out that yeah there we're just going to be talking about spoilers um yeah. quite a bit because in that, <laughs> yeah <laughs> So if you haven't read these issues already, we encourage you to do so, of course. Um, however, uh, yeah, once we, especially once we get into the nitty-gritty about episodes, we're not going to be holding anything back because we are going to assume that you've read these and are listening to us because you are interested in this material. That's right. So um, is there anything you want to talk generally about this volume in particular uh, before we dive into uh, getting uh, more specific? Um, just, just on one, just on one quick note, cause this kind of ties into the whole character. Um, a lot of people like, this might sound crazy now because of, you know, Robert Downey Jr. And how, who Iron Man is, but Iron Man in the seventies was actually a bi-monthly title for a couple years. And that was usually a sign of low sales. So he wasn't exactly like the hottest character in the world at one point in time. Yeah. So we're coming off of kind of like the uh, the demon in the bottle stuff I know was big. I don't know like what their reactions to it at the time were. But um, just basically we're kind of coming off of like a quiet, you know, business as usual period for Iron Man. And as, as you'll see, we're going to get into some uh, some status quo shaking stuff here. So, yeah, Iron Man, even. It, it, I, I feel like it's only really because of the movie that Iron Man is as big as or as 
important as he is now. He never really has been a high-selling book for Marvel. Um, he's just kind of been a mediocre book. And I feel like um, one of the things that Marvel does when they introduce their movies is if it's a character that the public hasn't heard of before, they turn him into a funny character because humor stands out and is memorable to people. So we saw that in Guardians of the Galaxy. Nobody knew about that, so he they're all funny characters. Um, Doctor Strange is somewhat a funny character, which he really isn't in the comics right. at all. And um, and they did that with Iron Man too. They turned Iron Man into a kind of a corny goofball with Robert Downey Jr.'s portrayal, which he has never been in the comics, ever. He's always been a pretty straight, serious guy. Right. Um, so And that's the Iron Man we get here, is a straight, serious Iron Man um, without a whole lot of humor. Um, and that's not just because of the subject matter, it's just kind of the way Tony Stark was back then as well. Um, so what are some things that we need to know going into this book? If you're picking this one up and reading it for the very first time, are there any are there any kind of plot unresolved plots that are are looming or hanging that uh, we need to know going into this book? Um, I don't think so. I, I, I think they, I mean, they, they jump on at a at a pretty quiet point in the character's history um, where nothing really earth shattering is going on. All you need to know basically is that. Tony Stark's Iron Man. Um, he's got Jim Rhodes as his uh, buddy at the time. He's uh, he's not in the, in the uh, armor yet, but he's at Stark Industries. Or he's his personal pilot, right? He was his pilot. Yeah. Was it Stark Industries or Stark International at this time? I get those confused. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I think it's just Industries. I'm or... sure somebody will correct us on yeah. uh, the forum. <laughs> yeah, probably. But, yeah. But no, it's um, um. I don't think there's really that much you need to know. He just, I mean, he owns his company, and he, he's Iron Man. It's... For those who are only familiar with the movies, um, they make a, a brief mention that uh, Pepper is married to Happy, um, and they have a kid together, and they're not not really in this book at all. In right. fact, Tony doesn't really have a supporting cast. I don't know if uh, that was just a, a result of Michelini not having a supporting cast himself or if he did away with them in his run because I haven't read a whole lot of that run. I've only read the Demon in the Bottle storyline, which is only like, I don't know, like three or four issues. I, I think um, you'll find that when uh, generally supporting casts are a mark of whoever's writing the book at the time. Right. And you, you'll see he, as we go through these, he does pick up one. And then when Michelini comes back, he kind of changes things around but that's way in the future so well let's uh let's dive right into the uh the issues and talk about yeah let's, we can hit them off one at a time or if we have nothing to say about them then we'll just kind of skip it but All the right. the first issue um issue number 158 is called moms did you have any strong opinions about this issue here um it's very bizarre it's, it's probably the weirdest uh issue in the entire comic or the entire collection um yeah a rare marvel uh appearance from carmen infantino though uh on artwork so that was kind of interesting other than that it's just it's kind of just like a basic like um inventory story so i mean not much to say about it i did find it it's very odd it's about like a 
a kid who's uh he was obviously abused like when he was younger by his mother and then yep. he's kind of torturing her and holding her against her will like later on and she he's trying to harness some kind of psychic powers of hers and uh iron man kind of gets mixed up in it as he's like flying over their uh mountain base or whatever and picking up some weird radio signal and uh yeah, it, it was. It's a really strange issue, and as far as I know, none of these characters ever appear again. No, I I thought it was actually really great. Um, bizarre, yes, but um, just kind of a neat one-off story that had, uh, um, yeah, the bizarre character. But then this this big extended scene where Tony is trapped underwater and, and um, like in a well, and the water's rising, and he has to try and figure out a way out of there before he drowns. Um, it. Uh, it, this is, the, I believe, the first issue that was written by Denny O'Neill for Iron Man. Yes. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I think I wonder if he was just kind of testing the waters or if this was a script that he kind of had prepared for the editor just to so that he could show his chops on the character or something like that. Yeah, a lot, and it has a lot no... of that happened at the time. Where he, This might have just been like a test run because he doesn't start his like official run until a couple issues down the road, so... Yeah. Um, I felt like there was a little bit too much unnatural exposition from the kid as he's talking. Because um, he's talking for our sake, but he's saying things that he's probably said to this mom... I don't know, maybe every day. <laughs> it just oh, about uh, how she seemed beat him for having yeah. bad grades and yeah. Yeah, like don't you remember how you beat me every single day when I was growing up and like yeah, I'm pretty sure she remembers. That's why she's tied up in the chair. Uh but yeah. Yeah, for a, for our sake, I guess. For just like a throwaway story though. Like this this really is kind of interesting. Like I kind of want to read it again because like they never really make it clear, like, who you're supposed to be rooting for, like, besides Iron Man. Like, this kid was obviously abused, you know, that, and that's terrible. Right. But, um, yeah. you know, the final scene is, like, you know, Iron Man rescues the mom. And then, uh, it's like, the, the last panel, she's like, uh, you know, give one for me, Iron Man, or something. And that's, like, the end. <laughs> I know. It's, it's like, like brutal. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. Yeah. She's, yeah. she's no saint either. <laughs> Just an oddball, oddball. Oh, the uh, yeah, the exact quote. She goes, "Do me a favor, hit him again," and then just yeah, it's like like a Looney Tunes ending almost. <laughs> and it's the end. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's move on then. Um, issue one fifty nine. It's called "When Strikes Diablo," featuring the famous uh, Fantastic Four villain of the, that name, Diablo. Let's see with art by Paul Smith in this one. Another and um, did did O'Neill write this one as well? I don't think so. I think this was uh, Roger McKenzie. Yeah, and it has a very different flavor. For yeah, sure. An- another kind of villain sort of issue. Um, I was never crazy about Diablo as a villain, but I am always a fan right. of like you know everybody interacts with everybody. So Iron Man fights somebody that's not normally one of his villains. Uh, I'm cool with that as a villain. Not too much to say about this one. Yeah, you get some cameos from Fantastic Four and, and Doctor Strange, and I feel like all of the uh, anytime a writer gets a chance to write Iron Man, they love to pull in all of his old armors. Yes, and so you have one uh, a big battle between Iron Man and all of his old armors that have been brought to life by the, by Diablo. Yes, um, and I'm so. thankful for that because Paul Smith draws some pretty awesome Iron Man armors. So yeah, so yay there. Um, and uh, yeah, we can move on to 
160, Cry of Beasts. And this is, um, this was an interesting one, drawn by Steve Ditko, um, who took a, a break from Marvel for quite a while and then came back. And this is after he'd been back for a little while, I think. Yeah, he kind of um, he kind of comes back here and there. Like, it, I mean, you don't really think of him as being around like for Marvel in this particular time, but you know, af- after that, like the Spider-Man run, like he just he doesn't really go away completely. He just pops in for these random just one-offs here and there. It's just it's really strange in retrospect. It is. I was um, I was quite pleased as well because I. Um, in the epic, in the Spider-Man Cosmic Adventures Epic Collection, he does some annual stories there, and that's 1990. So that's about 10 years down the road from this. Yes. Um, and his art is just awful. It's just absolutely terrible. But this issue, it's uh, it's still good. Um, he uh, and I wonder if it's partly the inker that's really helped things out here, um, whom I'll credit in just a second. Um, but uh, he he uh, he does a good job telling the story and, and his layouts and stuff are uh, are really nice. Let's see, the inker is Dan Green. Dan Green. Dan yeah. Green. The inker. I, I I actually specifically like had that in my notes. I'm like Steve Ditko and Dan Green looks awesome. <laughs> yeah, it does. Yeah, he um, was he was I, a, a real you know big time uh, workhorse inker for Marvel at this time. Dan Green did a lot of stuff, and he's he's one of my favorites. And I think that Dan Green probably worked a lot with Steve Ditko's art to uh, to turn it into what we see here on the page. Oh, yeah. As far as the story is concerned, this is kind of just another one-off issue. Although we start to see a little bit about his, um, his drinking because he goes to a party and he's tempted by various different kinds of alcohol. But he holds his ground. So I think this is kind of the Denny O'Neill beginning, uh, kind of beginning, sowing those seeds to what's going to happen in the coming issues. Oh, yeah, definitely. And uh, I think there was something else going on here, too, because he's at a party um, in the early 80s with, uh, you know, this, you know, arm candy kind of socialite girl. And uh, they're attacked by the Serpent Squad. And I don't think it... I want to say it's implied that it's Obadiah Stane, but I don't think it's ever outright like revealed. Um, but anyways, one, one of uh, the Serpent Squad, Black Mamba, she can uh, cause like hallucinations, and um, this one, uh, you know, his his date there is already like pretty sloshed, and uh, I know like towards the end, like he's like, "This is why I don't drink anymore." As she's sitting there like, <laughs> yeah. hallucinating and like seeing snakes, I'm like, eh, I think she took more than alcohol at this party. <laughs> <laughs> yep. But yeah, this is kind of like the Denny O'Neill like official start. Yeah, that's what I got. And of he it. has, he has. Um, there's a little throwback to the famous uh, Demon in the Bottle cover where Stark's looking in the mirror and he's got kind of big dark circles around his eyes. Yes. There's a little one scene at the end that's kind of a throwback to that. Um, sort of like a foreshadow of what's coming on. Definitely. Um, but yeah, then we get. Uh, we move into issue 161 with uh, If the Moon Man Should Fail, which is the very first pairing with uh, Luke McDonald on art. Um, so we kind of see the team coming together here. And uh, guest appearance by Moon Knight. 
And as far as I know, this is the first uh, Iron Man Moon Knight team up. And for uh, two characters as kind of as similar as they are, like the Stephen Grant aspect of Moon Knight, like the billionaire playboy, and then Tony Stark. I don't think they really interacted too much, you know. In their, no, they in didn't their really at all. No. I kind of wanted to see more of it. It seemed like kind of a cool, uh, cool little team up. We we don't know even that uh, Moon Knight's part of the plot until he removes himself from the situation and starts kind of saving the day from behind the scenes. Um, and then yeah, Iron Man kind of gets out of his situation and then goes off and I don't yeah I don't think they really ever meet at all so it's not really much of a team up no but it was still a good issue I really liked um um they there's some really nice inking in this I find that uh, there are a few inkers in this book that go over Luke McDonald's um pencils and these guys give it kind of a much more dark and gritty kind of look yeah and I kind of feel like it was intentional to try and uh, reflect the dark and grittiness of the Moon Knight book itself, because that was Bill Sinkovich who was doing that book. Oh, very um, distinct visual style. And exactly, and so this doesn't come anywhere close to that for sure. Um, but uh, it's definitely more just a, a grittier tone than uh, later on Luke McDonald's work later on in this this book. Yeah. Did you want to maybe since this is like his official start? Did you want to just take a couple seconds to talk about Luke McDonald in general. Yeah, yeah, go for it. Okay. Yeah, I kind of uh he's one of those guys where he, he's he doesn't like outright grab you with his artwork, but he's he's super solid. He never misses a deadline ever. Like I, I think uh he even does like the annual one of those years and like as a trade off like I think he just skipped one of the regular issues of the title. So you, you don't really see too many artists like that anymore. Um, I kind of liken him to like a Gene Colan, where it's it's very like uh, wispy and like kind of atmospheric. And um, Colan's obviously you know the probably the better artist, but uh, McDonald he's he's solid. I I really liked a lot of his stuff in this book, and like kind of what you were saying before, if he's paired with a good inker, it's it's very good. I I agree, totally solid. I really like that um, he's just got that classic Marvel 80s style. Absolutely. And I think there are other people that kind of fall into their, into this style, um, like Ron Friends, I think um, I'd put in the same boat, and uh, uh, maybe Paul Ryan on Fantastic Four, uh, kind of give, up, give off that kind of this is what Marvel was doing um, in the 80s. And it a lot of it feels kind of like it's calling back to the 60s. Um, but uh, yeah, he's he's great. He's I think he's just an understated artist. Yeah, as I'm uh growing up, you know, around comics like the same age as me, like you know, you're probably into like your Jim Lee's and stuff like that. Which you know, I, I still like those guys too. But yeah, I'm just I'm getting old. I like <laughs> I just like my, <laughs> my my rock solid artists who you know don't miss deadlines and stuff. So yeah, that yeah, that's definitely sure. like as I got older, I got an appreciation for that kind of stuff more. Well, um, we get into this this issue here, 161, and then the very next thing we see is the annual. So we have to take a break from uh, from the regular stuff to get into a, a story starring the Black Panther. Um, what's this one called? War and Remembrance. Uh, I really liked this annual. 
I'm not often a fan of annuals because I feel like a lot of the time the filler there's just a filler story kind of feel to to them in general I feel um, they often struggle to uh, to keep up a pace for the page count too sometimes yeah. they work like I, I remember I kind of just a- annuals in general I was never really a huge fan either but sometimes like when you had like a team book those were those were usually pretty cool annuals because you'd see a lot more characters get room to breathe in the script whereas you know in 22 pages they were kind of relegated to the background right. um, single single character uh, like an Iron Man or a Captain America some of those annuals um, I not as I don't feel as strongly about was never a huge huge annual fan well and I think the thing that makes this annual stand out is that it stars Black Panther rather than Iron Man. It's more of a Black Panther book uh, story than it is an Iron Man one. And Black Panther didn't have a title at this time. Um, so he... Uh, I think this was just the chance to keep the character in people's minds and uh, give him some story development. So we have uh, we have Peter Gillis as the scripter and co-plotter with Ralph Macchio as the other co- co-plotter with uh, Jerry Bingham on pencils and uh, Jerry Bingham actually is back on he did Black Panther in the 70s during the Black Panther 70s series so this is a return to the character for him and um, Peter Gillis would from here then go on to do Black Panther miniseries in 1988 following the storyline that they set up here and uh, and you, you'd see a lot of this during this era too of Marvel where um, if somebody's book got cancelled it would get picked up uh, picked up in an annual two years down the road, or a random issue of Marvel two and one, or or something like that. So this, yeah, this kind of just to like, tie up loose ends. Yeah. yeah, and I'm actually reading that Black Panther uh, epic right now. <laughs> I haven't gotten through it. Oh yet, yeah, but yeah, it just started. Um, Dan Green's on inks on this one as well. He's he's just a solid guy. I really like his inking. Yeah, no, the 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 book definitely looked good. So this story deals with the return of Killmonger, who died in that Black Panther epic. So if you are reading these out of order, there's a spoiler for you there. Yep. Um, but he comes back, sort of comes back, because there's a, there's a bigger story going on with his return. Um, which sets up the return of a character that I think doesn't even come to play in, in this volume, right? He think he comes back in the next volume no i uh i originally read this um about a year ago and then i just recently re- reread it for the podcast and i and it's uh the mandarin is kind of behind yes. all of this so i was i got to the end i'm like wait a minute like where did that come from because i i thought he was going to be a much big player in this cause the way they set it up yeah and uh he really doesn't he doesn't appear at all in the rest of this epic so they're setting some stuff up for way way down the line way down the line so I there's some um, if you go to page 130 130 there's this nice um, layout where they're telling kind of the parallel a parallel story but between what Iron Man is doing on the top row and what Black Panther is doing on the bottom row and their actions kind of mimic each other um, I just I just liked the little nod like um, the creative uh, storytelling yeah, there's some interesting page layout there too. That's cool. Yeah, the uh, I like it when when uh, the artists or the writers will plot out their 
their story in those kind of terms, um, thinking about the, uh, just kind of giving a little unique visual rather than just plowing ahead with regular narrative. Yep. <laughs> um, also, I wanted just to mention that uh, on the cover of this annual, um, I can't remember the girl's name, uh, Madam Slay, it looks like she's missing an arm. And I don't know exactly where it's gone, but her right arm is totally gone. Oh, yeah. Oh, I, I barely noticed it. I can kind of see what they were going for, like with the, uh, you know, the fading out. And that's something that probably just wasn't drawn in mind for the kind of coloring technology that they had at the time. Because other than that, it's a pretty cool cover. Kind of got It's like, a great cover. Yeah, like a half Iron Man x-ray sort of thing. And yeah, it's. I wonder if they were thinking that the... Uh the barcode box was going to cover it up or something like yeah, that. I don't know. Now I'm going through <laughs> like, the book to check and see if she was missing an arm because I don't think she was. She wasn't. Okay. I did that exact same thing. Like, <laughs> is she missing an arm? No, she's not. She's got both of them in the book there. <laughs> it's also funny that um, they put Mandarin right on the cover. It's like, who is this mystery guy? Um, and yeah. then he's in only one page. Now, was this in, like, a, like a recognizable Mandarin costume? Like, I, know I don't think been, so. Like, I know he's been through a ton in the years. And... Yeah. I think this was a new redesign, which is why they could put the cover, put him on the cover with like, right. just a question mark and no one would understand. Because I know uh, when, he, when he first appeared, he had like the, uh, the weird green and with the purple mask and the Fu Manchu. And yeah. I don't exactly. know if, he was, if, if this was his first change or if he changed before that, but... That, yeah, I don't know. It's possible that maybe it was just a new design, so it was meant to throw us off. Well, let's move into issue number uh, 162, which is the title of this book, The Menace Within. Uh, and this is kind of really where the story kicks off. Um, even though this one issue feels like a one-off story, um, there are elements in it that come into play later. So... Um, let me see here. And we uh, this one actually isn't penciled by Luke McDonald. It's Mike Fosberg. Yes. So it has a, has a different feel. I wasn't quite a fan of this guy. But yeah, we uh, in this story, there everyone gets these special headphones that end up um, hypnotizing people and, and uh, giving them suggestions on what they should do. And, and the suggestions are to start destroying things and hurting each other. And they... Um, and it uh, it turns out to be um, an old employee of his that uh, has uh, come up with this technology, um, and it's setting the seeds for uh, um, what we what Obadiah Stain eventually is going to do later on in this book, uh, which is take over Stark Industries. Yep, um, I don't have too much to say about this one other than just. Uh you, you kind of start to see that there's more going on right now than just like uh, super villains attacking him. Like people are starting to attack his, uh, you know, his business and they're attacking from the inside. So this is just uh, like a little, a little teaser of what's to come. So then, yeah, we can move into number 163. Uh, what's it called? Knight's Errand. This is the beginning of the, the chessmen storyline. Um, the chessmen, uh, kind of uh they're they're very dc I, like i don't know how how else to explain it um i don't know i don't i don't know if that's like uh because denny o'neill's on the title but i always think of like uh 
like Batman like villains and like uh you know the the cheesy Batman like having uh seamed villains like guys dressed up yeah. as uh King Tut costumes or something like that. So definitely. Well and he, there are there's the play in cards, um what are they called? The flush the gang Batman. or whatever. The, the, yeah, the Royal Flush <laughs> Gang, yeah. Yeah, it's so kind this, of the Marvel equivalent. I, I was kind of getting those kind of vibes from it, but um, yeah, we're kind of slowly getting introduced to Obadiah Stane here. He's a big, uh, big chess player, and that's a like a running theme throughout this is that he's, you know, he's waiting to move all the pieces in the right position before he finally takes over uh, Tony Stark's business. Uh, yeah, this is actually the first uh, behind the scenes Obadiah Stane. Like you, you do see his hand playing with a chessboard, so you know that somebody's manipulating these things that are happening to Tony. Right. Um, he defeats the chess man in battle, and uh, he saves a woman, um, Indris Mumja, and he starts really, really falling for her, like very, very fast. And, uh, <laughs> really fast. Really <laughs> fast. And now uh, that's that's going to lead to some interesting things down the road. Moving on to 164, Deadly Blessing, in which we meet another chess character. This one's called the Bishop. Yeah, I don't really have a whole lot to say on this one either, um, except that I really like that uh, Tony uses his smarts. He's been using his smarts kind of throughout this book, so he doesn't just rely on his suit to get him out of, it, out of problems. Um, he actually... He actually has a brain in there. Yeah, and um, one thing I, I noted about this issue was that uh, this is another thing that's kind of hard to think about now with what we know about Iron Man, but even when Rhodey was first introduced, he wasn't very prominent in the background. And in these handful of issues right here, you really see him start to show up more, and you kind of get more of uh, of his character. Yeah, because obviously Denny and Neil has a plan for him, so he's slowly introducing us to him more and more yeah and the um the, the battle here too it, it takes place at uh is it was a cat a castle in scotland yeah and um sure enough being that this is a comic for american audiences in the early 80s like he's the guy who introduces them is he's as scottish as scottish can be and like, <laughs> yeah. just like blatant stereotype invites him into the castle uh you know they defeats the other bishop and uh, I believe this ended with uh, Rhodey getting kidnapped, and he's covered in spiders. Yeah, and he's, if he gets bitten, there's poison that'll kill him within hours or something like yeah, that. Yeah, I think he actually gave him, like, a, a time frame, too. Like, he's calculated, like, okay, so many bites by so much time. That's Now that I think about it, that's kind of a very DC sort of plan, too. <laughs> <laughs> well, and then it gets even more DC because um, in the next issue, issue 16, uh, 165, which is called Endgame, we find out that the whole castle's rigged with booby traps that he has to go through oh, yeah. in order to get to the end. <laughs> so it's uh, <laughs> it's it feels very classic, kind of kind of golden age setup here. Yeah, and I don't want anybody to think like I'm not slogging on DC, so you know, don't attack me for that. <laughs> but it just it is it is, <laughs> it is what it is. It, it's fun though. I like I like this one a lot. Like uh, it's totally fun. When he gets his armor um, just completely destroyed by that acid in the castle, and like you actually see it like bubbling on him, and like it yeah. stays that way for like you know the rest of the issue, like that was a really cool visual. That was well done. Yeah, there's some great stuff going on here. Yeah, and that's um, Luke McDonald in full swing. He's uh, he's doing really well. 
Yep. Um, uh, yeah. He, there's the there's just the the scene as well where he's kind of lifting up um, that huge square rock that's been uh, that's been on him. You can just the way he draws it, you can feel the weight. Oh yeah. Uh, of the rock as Iron Man is trying to lift it up. So yeah, he he does some good work here. Um, and then we, um, Indris comes out of the hospital and um, and stows away on the airplane, so she's here in Scotland with them. Yeah. And I guess she's all healed from her injuries, like she's completely better now. And she wants to be with Tony. Yeah, they they do a pretty good job here of like you 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 know something's up. Like she's way too good to be true. Yeah. Is the way they describe like, her. She's like, you know, the most beautiful woman on the face of the planet. And she, you know, just happens to be a damsel in distress at this, you know, point in time. Yeah. And and just the fact that Tony falls for her so hard. And right. it's the Scooby Doo mentality. It's like someone shows up out of the blue. You've got to be <laughs> that guy. Because <laughs> Tony, Tony's usually cooler than school, too, you know. So he's to see him just get so easily flustered is odd. Yeah. And um, one one other brief thing I did note about this one is this this is actually the the issue where we see Pepper, and I believe oh, yeah. Pepper had been out of the book for a very long time at this point, and she's with a child. Uh, her and Happy had a child, and um, I don't I'm not like uh, too up on my recent like Iron Man lore, but I'm not sure if they ever reveal what happens to them. Like I know that they revealed that they eventually divorced, but it was like off panel when they showed up like ten years later. Oh yeah, so, yeah. So this is kind of just like an interesting little snapshot of what she was doing at the time. Yeah, it's weird and out of place because she's not. She doesn't pop up anywhere else. Like you right. said, she has uh, hasn't shown up for a long time. In fact, they reference it right here. Um, Iron Man one twelve is the last time they saw um, Pepper Pepper Hogan. So, so that was fifty right issues ago. Yeah, roughly. Yeah, so that's wild. That's a long time. Yeah. So yeah, to bring her up for this one panel or two panels, and then not revisit is it's very strange. Yeah, and I think what they're doing too is they're showing because um Vic Martinelli um you know back in uh back at the Stark headquarters or whatever, he's uh he's on to who these villains are, he's on to who they're working for, and uh, I think a lot of Tony's friends. Uh, past and present are kind of concerned about what's happening to them, so they're just kind of painting that picture with Pepper. Ah. Um, okay, let's move on to 166. Okay. And this issue's called One of Those Days. Oh, we've got the Melter. Uh, really, really, really old Iron Man villain. Like, he was one of the original uh, Tales of Suspense Iron Man villains. And um, yeah. he shows up and he's just at uh, Mrs. Arbogast's office um, back at Stark Industries. And uh, Tony's basically like, you know what? Like, screw this. Like, I don't have time for this. Like, I just got back home from fighting chessmen in Scotland. And we don't know where Rhodey is. And uh, we find out later he was hired by uh, Obadiah Stane. Um, the Melter, he's, uh, he's kind of one of those just generic... Uh, villains who he hates Tony Stark because uh, Tony Stark was like a better inventor than him which uh, you, you ran into a lot of those if you were an inventor <laughs> and um, you either you hated if you weren't a hero you hated Reed Richards you hated Tony Stark or you hated Hank Pym and that was your whole MO <laughs> so uh, one thing I did like yep. about this though was that he was um, he was using his uh, melter ray 
and that was like his whole gimmick he could melt iron man's armor but of course iron man's armor was always evolving so the melter was always two steps behind him right and uh in this issue he has a melting ray that can actually disintegrate iron man's current armor but what he doesn't know (laughs) is that that armor was destroyed in the last issue so he's wearing an older model so i i just thought that was a really cool touch (laughs) And his rays are not backwards compatible. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so this is the issue where we actually see him full body, like his face and everything. And it makes me wonder why they kept him mysterious in the past. Because he's really, the reveal is really not a surprise because we've never seen this guy before. Yeah. Now, if, And if you were reading, uh, like we were just talking about the annual that's collected in this volume, you would think that this mystery villain was the Mandarin. Right, because they showed him behind the shadows, and then the, the the final reveal is that it's a brand new character. So that was kind of kind of interesting. It was weird, yeah. <laughs> and uh, if you're familiar with Obadiah Stane just from the movies, um, his appearance here is kind of shocking. Like I'm not really sure why he's in a supervillain costume. <laughs> right. Like he he looked very uh very different. He's got like a uh, big baggy purple pants, like a gold medallion hanging from his neck, no shirt. Uh, this big, like, uh, weird coat that he doesn't have sleeves on it. It's <laughs> definitely indicative of the 80s, and it reminds me, he oh, yeah. looks like something you'd see in G.I. Joe. Yeah, and I'm... <laughs> I could see that. And he it, he doesn't really have a reason for, like, being in costume, other than that it's a superhero comic, and that's just right. what people do. So I yeah. think um, the way they reimagined him in the movie uh, definitely works better. Like, totally. I, I couldn't imagine Jeff, Jeff Bridges... Uh, well, maybe he could pull off that look. I, I that would be interesting. But <laughs> well, I would imagine they, if they went for this, they'd get a different actor. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned this before about him being kind of a master strategist, and it's just it's fantastic what, watching him um, manipulate things and calling the shots, uh, and how things are playing into his hands because he's he's planned it out so carefully. Um. One of the things that I really like is uh, how Tony Tony just kind of his his descent starts, and you can see it seems perfectly like natural the path that he's going given his history, but to know that it's all been calculated out is something else. Um, yeah, this is a uh, this is like right before we hit the tipping point, and um, Obadiah Stane his deal is that he's uh he's out in Switzerland, and uh, Tony actually goes to see him for the first time because he knows that he's uh, he's the one behind all of the uh, bad stuff that's been happening to him lately and uh, he can't prove anything though so he just goes there and then he has to leave so that's another cool like uh, you know master manipulator uh, moment for Obadiah Stane and um, Rhodey is still out there somewhere um, he's he's vanished um, they reveal that uh, Stark lost some of his foreign contracts, and so there's just so much stuff going on right now. And the issue ends with him approaching a bottle of whiskey, and we don't know what happens. Yeah, it was a good ending. Okay, let's move on to issue 167, it's called the Empty Shell. This one is the. Uh, it takes place directly where the last issue left off Tony reaching for his bottle yeah this one um, I'm going to say it right now this was my favorite issue easily in the uh, in the entire run 
Um, Tony is just, he's at rock bottom. Uh, he does, he resists the bottle at the beginning of the issue, but he hasn't slept. His, his friend is missing. Um, Steen's putting him out of business. And uh, like all his friends to note that, you know, this guy's, this guy's going to crack. He's on eggshells. Um, he calls uh, Indres from Switzerland and tells her that he loves her. And uh, so that that's interesting. And then um, he is a, he does get attacked by another uh, one of the chessmen. This one's actually the second bishop, which I I know we talked before about how they're kind of gimmicky, yeah. but uh, I thought that I thought that was cool because there's there's two bishops on the board, so he had a second bishop attack him, and uh, he had to defeat this one uh, in a different way than the first one. So um, we uh, see that there's uh, some assassins um, after Rhodey. He's trying to get back home. Um, and then Tony, uh, the, the end of this comic is just great. He finally finds Indres, and uh, she just completely cuts him apart, like tells him that, you know, I, I could never love somebody like you. And uh, the strongest the strongest chess piece on the board is the queen. So she's revealed as being, you know, in league with Obadiah Stane. Uh, so that is just completely it for Tony, and he finally succumbs to the bottle. And uh, and the headphones come back. So some, a plot that was uh, in one of the earlier issues that seemed like it was unrelated actually comes back, to, and we find out that Stane was kind of behind the scenes and a bunch of things that's, that's been going on at Stark Enterprises recently. Okay, well, let's go on to the next one. Um, it's called uh, The Iron Scream, issue number 168, with a special guest star, Machine Man. And I have never read any Machine Man before. He's kind of a, a more obscure character. Um, are you familiar with Machine Man? Um, I read uh, Next Wave, which uh, had Machine Man in it, and then only just a handful of comics here and there before that. So no, not I don't really have any kind of attachment to the character. He looks cool, but it's I could take him or leave him. Yeah, I I thought he was kind of a cool, um, just the whole I'm a robot trying to figure out what it means to be human kind of like that's a a normal kind of robot storyline it seems. Yeah, <laughs> but um, this issue I find it odd that we we get to that height with Tony. Um, finally going back to drinking and then we get this issue with kind of a silly a silly guest star and it's almost like they're trying to relieve some tension but at the same time using this character to uh, to bring out how kind of um, dire the situation is with Iron Man because Tony puts on the armor while he's wasted and just uh, runs amok yeah they um they kind of they kind of draw an interesting parallel in that like this this machine he's more human than Tony at this point. Um, mm-hmm. Basically, Machine Man's deal is that I'm not sure how how well he's known in like the wider Marvel universe at this point in his history. Um, I'm guessing this is probably their first meeting, but probably uh, I think so. Yeah. So basically, Machine Man's angle is really simple. He just wants a friend, and he thinks Iron Man's a robot just like him. So <laughs> yeah. that's really his, his only intention is to just make a new robot friend. And uh, Iron Man's just like, oh, God, like I stain sent this guy after me now. So 
goes and just you know just starts wrecking things with Machine Man, and Machine Man's like, "What? What's wrong with you, man?" Like, and then he, had to, he finally figures out that there's a man underneath the armor, and kind of just leaves in shame after that. And he, even he, kind of realizes like, "Hey, some, something's not right with this guy." Yeah, it was a fun story. I I, I did enjoy it. Um, it just seemed like it was kind of a, a weird weird placement right after the issue that we just had. Yeah, and um, another thing I noticed about this issue too is that you see uh, you see Jim Rhodes. Um, you see a white Jim Rhodes uh, escaping from his pursuers. Oh, yeah. And at first I thought that this was a coloring error because yeah, like, me I'm, too. I'm that's, something they, <laughs> that's something they did a lot at that time. Yeah. Um, but no, he actually uh, he put makeup on uh, so they could disguise himself and escape, and uh, I put in my notes you can't do that with uh, the essential volumes. So, oh yeah, that's right. How so shout out, shout off? out to the epics. Yeah. <laughs> uh, let's move on to then issue number one hundred and sixty-nine. It's called Blackout, and this one um, we have another. I believe this is a new villain um, that Danny O'Neill created for the book called magma and you can correct me if i'm wrong i don't know um magma actually showed up in a issue of marvel team up and i think that was his only prior uh prior appearance before this yeah oh actually and, um, i think they do mention that don't they yeah he's yeah back and, because with new powers or something like that yeah very very obscure villain and it's i mean and if you couldn't tell by now we're calling him he it's not the magma from new mutants this is a different character right uh, Jonathan yeah. Dark, I believe his name is, um, but he's just kind of another guy, uh, just just a dude in a powerful suit that doesn't like Iron Man. This is a pivotal issue because this is the one where Tony kind of uh, gets to the point where he is no longer he no he can no longer control himself, especially in the Iron Man suit. He's more concerned with being with drinking than actually trying to help anybody. And so Rhodey it, decides to take it upon himself to uh, put on the suit and help people. And I think at this point, he doesn't even know that Tony Stark is Iron Man. This is the big reveal in this issue. Yeah, and the reveal is actually well done. Um, you see like an extreme close-up of uh, Tony Stark's face behind the plate as he's crying. And um, Rhodey is... Uh, he's not really surprised like he he, he kind of says that you know I had my suspicions but I didn't want to say anything so I thought that was that was kind of a cool take on it because usually it's like oh my god you were Iron Man and so, <laughs> <laughs> yeah now how familiar are you with um with like Iron Man's secret ident identity and like who knows what and I'm not very familiar with it but um, I kind of inferred from some of these issues um, and I, I just recently read the Secret Wars as well. Um, and in there, the people, all of the heroes in Secret Wars don't know that Rhodey is Iron Man. Um, right. So, and I think, yeah, I think I'm pretty sure that it's still a secret even to the other Avengers at this point. Yeah, I, I honestly like I, I lose track of like who who knows at this point and who doesn't. Um, I always thought that Rhodey knew, so that was kind of uh, interesting to me to uh, to read that this was actually the first time. 
Um, right. I'm not sure if that was retconned like later on. I want to say it was, but I mean, this is just me coming into these, you know, 20 years after 20, 30 years after the fact. And uh, the secret identity thing, I th- I always thought he worked better without it. Um, it was just kind of like a like a genre convention for comic books. If if you were a superhero, you kept your identity a secret, like no matter what. Right. Yeah, and um, this is a. Uh, this actually ends with, um, like you said, he's he's way too messed up to be piloting this thing. So, Rhodey actually takes on the suit, and then um, in a pretty iconic panel, you see uh, Rhodey holding up the Iron Man helmet, and it's kind of shadowed over his face. And then they use a variation of that for uh, for the next cover, like who is this Iron Man? Yeah, it's really effective, and I wonder if this was Denny O'Neill's idea or if this was kind of um, an editor um, like they had an idea and wanted Denny to, to play it out yeah I'm, about I'm not Brody. Sure. Um, and I wonder it'd be interesting to find out and if anyone who's listening knows you can let us know um, send us an email or something is uh, what was the reaction to having Rhodey be Iron Man at the time like what? Uh, how did that go over? Um, and in particular, I think, especially in this time, in the eighties, was um, was having a black guy take over for Iron Man a big deal? Because I know that um, recently in the comics, um, Falcon took over for Captain America, and there was some outcry about that. Um, right, so and I, you know, you see know. nowadays. Nowadays, too, there's a lot of uh, people can go, you know, there, a, lot, a lot of people have strong opinions on, you know, who they think the character should be. Yeah. And it's Marvel trying to play to certain demographics and things like that. Totally. Um, I thought it was very well done here, though. I mean, it's it's organic. Um, it is. Yeah, it doesn't seem forced it, at all. And he's the he's the natural person to do it. Sure, and it's and it's not like Tony just disappears either. Tony's still a big part of the storyline. And um, yeah, I put in my notes here too that this is actually the last time uh, we see Tony in armor until uh, issue two hundred. So, Rhodey gets the spotlight for quite a while here. Yeah, that's um, what issue are we at? One sixty nine. One sixty nine, I think. Yeah. So thirty issues. That's over two years. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, I give him credit for uh, sticking with it. Okay, the next issue, 170, is called And Who Shall Clothe Himself in Iron? That's a very Stanley title for an for an issue there. Yeah, they're just missing um, a, uh, a Wentz in, uh, yeah, right. <laughs> in the title. Or Lo, L-O, he used that a lot too. <laughs> and Lo, Who Shall Clothe Himself in yes. Iron? There yeah. you go. Yeah. <laughs> Here we have Rhodey's first day on the job as Iron Man. And uh, what I really like about this issue is uh, that he he doesn't instantly know how to use the suit. He's like, there's all these buttons and stuff and I've never used it before. And the first thing he does is find someone who would know and reveals his secret identity. Um, I, I thought that was an interesting take on how Rhodey approaches being Iron Man versus how Tony approaches being Iron Man. Yeah, and I think that's kind of a cool... I, I didn't even think about this, but that's kind of a cool red herring in that he reveals his identity to... Uh, what is it, Morley Irwin? Yeah. And uh, Morley Irwin, he's like a scientist working with Stark here, and he, he becomes a pretty big supporting character during the whole uh, Jim Rhodes run. Yeah. But just the fact that he reveals it so quickly, 
makes you think that this is only going to be a temporary thing. Right. And like Jim's like, um, it doesn't matter to me if he knows I'm Iron Man because I'm not going to be Iron Man tomorrow. I'm just going right. to wait till I'm just doing this today while Tony, you know, has his hangover or whatever. Right. This was just the second, um, the second part of the fight with Magma and um, right. Obi sends one of the knights uh, to interfere, and um, actually the knight ends up taking out Magma because uh, you know the master chess player he wants to win the game on his own. Yeah, yeah, that was that was a neat thing. So Magma was um, an unexpected twist for for Stain. He didn't see that one coming. Kind of a rare villain in this run here that's not uh, being controlled by Obadiah. He's just on on his own. But um, Rhodey handles himself fairly well, and yet it's cool that he doesn't know how to use it because if you think about it, like, you know, realistically, this thing would cost what, like, billions and billions of dollars, you know, yeah. at, the, at this time frame. So there's probably all, all sorts of, you know, little things and little ticks in the armor that, you know, you have to just know what they do. And he's like, he's just putting this on for the first time. It's not, yeah. it's not like just turning the keys uh, in a car and just driving. One of the first, the things that um, that Rhodey does at the end of this issue is he calls up the Avengers and says he needs to take a leave of absence. He says, um, the boss, Mr. Stark, has been going through a lot of changes and he'll be needing my help on a more full-time basis for the time being. This was my clue that the Avengers still don't know that Iron Man is Tony Stark. Yes. And this is the this is the 80s. I, was for, I thought for sure that every, like, the other teammates would know each other's secret identities by this point but apparently not i think captain america does and um yeah i don't don't think anyone else does though maybe the wasp or that might have come later right but uh yeah yeah it's pretty uh pretty pretty big uh development there him being uh out of the avengers okay so we can move on to issue 171 and we get a little bit more into uh, the relationship between Rhodey and Morley. I, I like this guy. Um, I think he's kind of he's a neat um, character, not your typical kind of scientist guy, that like Tony Stark. And we also meet in this issue um, Morley's sister. What, what's her name? Um, I'm probably gonna butcher the pronunciation. I think it's like Clymenestra or. They oh, yeah. they call her Cly a lot, but uh, I don't think I, I've never heard that used in real life before. <laughs> no, I haven't either. Yeah, these two are very specifically like um, they're specifically the, the Jim Rhodes uh, supporting cast, and uh, yeah. I, I I like both of these characters. Yeah, they make a good team. I like their their banter, and uh, kind of their their relationship, their brother sister relationship is neat. <laughs> Overall, this was a uh, I found this whole issue to be a little bit on the dull side just because it was um it was a lot of just kind of figuring things out the overall point was just showing that roadie can hang with a villain and um right. thunder thunderball uh he's not he just uh he's i think he's basically here to what um just catch up with his ex like he's pissed that she's married to somebody else or dating somebody right. else so he's just uh he's just in a grumpy mood um wrecking crew wrecking stuff that's what they do and Rhodey just uh, goes to put a stop to it. Well, I think we can move on to number 172. Um, this one's called Firebrand's Revenge. Firebrand is a, a villain that I I only know from 
like one issue of Web of Spider-Man that I read when I was a kid. So <laughs> this is really my only my second time ever reading anything about Firebrand. But I feel like we're getting a lot of um, a lot of just these kind of C-list villains just to kind of start off Rhodey on the uh, with a little bit of an easy task before he hits someone like the Mandarin. Yeah, they got to give him a little uh, baptism by fire. No pun yeah, and then we have a special guest star in this one with by uh, Captain America. He and he confronts Tony about his dr- his drinking problem. I feel like that's just kind of he's the right person to do it since he's kind yes. of the symbol of morality. Um, but also these guys go way back, so he's a good friend. Um, yeah, one thing I wanted to add just real quick to this too was that um, at the end of last issue, Tony actually got arrested for uh, for public intoxication. So that that was right. a big cliffhanger. That's why that's why Captain America is coming to to check up on his friend. Oh, this is also the issue where Stain actually takes control of of Stark Enterprises. Yes, he uh, he pops up on the very last panel, and um, he's actually wearing a suit here, so he looks more like a you know traditional businessman. He doesn't right. have the jewel on his forehead, and he's got this. Uh, He's wearing the um like the the giant coat like you know just over the shoulders but not the arms in it so he looks kind of badass there and, uh, <laughs> yeah he says you know I'm hi everybody like I'm I'm your new boss so Tony is officially out so in this one there is definitely a resemblance to Lex Luthor and I wonder if that's intentional yeah um I I probably say if it wasn't intentional and intentional they were at least uh, subconsciously influenced. Yeah, we're actually did um. Now, when did uh the big uh Superman relaunch take place? Like with uh John Byrne, because was was that the first like uh, Lex Luthor corporate businessman guy? Uh, oh yeah, like when he switched from being a, just a mad scientist. Yeah, so I, I mean, I'm 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 like not the right guy to ask about like DC stuff, but um, this might have actually preceded that if if this, if that happened like after the after the DC rebirth or not rebirth uh crisis. Um, yeah, that's interesting. I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm not a huh. that much of a DC guy either. Yeah, because um, we're in 80, 82, 83 here, and that's I think that's like mid to late 80s, so oh, that's kind of interesting. Yeah, that is an interesting observation. Well, let's go on to issue number 173. Judas is a woman, and I'll just do just a quick comment on the inking that I was trying to explain. If you go to page 394, you can really see the example of um, just the lines on these people's faces that that are very different and I feel like change the feel of, of the whole style of inking yeah there's not a lot of solid blacks here it, it's very kind of uh, wispy looking and it, it is a little a little different kind of hard to get used to yeah and I don't know what brought on the change because he this same inker wasn't like that just a few like the, during the uh, the magma issues I'm wondering if it's because it's supposed to be raining out, but they don't show like like you see it go. The rain is go- obviously going one way, and then they have like the shadows going a different way. Like right. on um, like when you see is that a uh, is that Vic there? Vic Vic's face up in that panel, and yeah, it just yeah. it looks kind of strange. It does. Pretty cool uh, shakeup of um the supporting cast here. Uh, no nobody wants to work for Stain, um so. So they all uh, quit. Yeah, they they're handing in their resignations here. Um, Mrs. Yeah. Arbogast, you know, she leaves. She's been around forever. 
and uh, it's officially Stain International now. I feel this is probably just because I haven't read the volumes that come before this, um, but everyone seems so loyal to Stark. But in the first half of this book, Stark is horrible to most of these people. Yeah, like he's just not not really a nice guy to them. Yet they stand they stand up for him. So I found that to be an interesting observation, and uh, maybe it's because they just have a long history with the guy and know him better than how he treats them. But uh, I would give this new guy a chance if I were in their situation because yeah. <laughs> I probably wouldn't have liked Tony Stark very much. Yeah, because they don't know what he's been doing. So. Yeah. <laughs> Other than that, like f- for this issue, uh, Stain kind of tries to manipulate Iron Man um, now that it's Jim Rhodes. I don't think he, he sus- suspects that it's somebody different, though. Um, he wants him to rescue Indries. Uh, apparently, Indries has been kidnapped by some kind of a crazy Marvel terrorist organization. And uh, she can help Tony, supposedly, because, you know, he was so head over heels in love with her. So he's kind of trying to leverage Rhodey into saving her, which is which is kind of interesting. Right. And it doesn't work the same way because he's not uh, he's not in love with her. Right. And um, Rhodey actually takes Tony Stark to uh, to his mom's house, to, to Rhodey's uh, mom's house, you know, just to, so he has somebody to look after him. And... Uh, at the end of the issue, like uh, we get another cool cliffhanger. Tony's not there. Yeah, he just he couldn't resist the bottle. I think this is the one where she said like he uh, was so desperate for booze he downed like a a bottle of cooking wine and then just took off. So yeah, he's he's at rock bottom. Okay, uh, moving on to number one seventy four, Armor Chase. Um, one thing I found interesting was. Uh, if, if you're reading current Marvel or if you're only familiar with the movies, uh, S.H.I.E.L.D. is like the agency that's behind everything. And uh, it, w- it wasn't always like that. Like, uh, S.H.I.E.L.D. was always in the background, but they weren't like dominating like uh, the entire Marvel universe. So it's kind of refreshing to see like uh, like the old school S.H.I.E.L.D. because that's, that's kind of the one that I was fond of, the one that was always in the background. Totally. Um, and in this one, Nate Fury actually does stuff rather than just stand and, and look cool on the helicarrier. Yes, and I think he, uh, I think him and Tony actually had some some issues going way back to where Tony wouldn't sell out to Shield. Right. So um, now that Tony is out, um, Shield is legitimately worried that all these weapons of mass destruction, aka the Iron Man armors, are under control of somebody that they. That they don't, they know. don't know what yeah. his deal is. Yeah, so they uh, they they make a move to actually get uh, control of the armors for themselves, and uh, I thought that was that was kind of cool, like a, a nice little uh, Marvel Universe crossover. Totally, I thought it was cool too. I just fe- felt like they took too long to get to that point because the this next issue, one seventy five, uh, where they actually go underwater, and uh, I thought this one was great. I really liked it. Um, they meet up with, uh, I guess the Rhodey sends all of the armor to the bottom of the sea, and they end up being like falling in the laps of the Atlantans, and especially Krang, the kind of the guy in charge of Atlantis at this time. Um, so he gets he gets all of these different Iron Man armors and distributes them among his men, 
and um, we have the classic, the heroes are at odds for some reason, but then they realize that they have to team up to defeat the, the greater evil or something. Um, and yeah, it's just a fun story. I always like seeing Krang and these people come out, come into the story without Namor um, to show that they actually have their own character. Yeah, I, I kind of have a different opinion about this issue. Like, um, I, I do like when when people trade villains, and I it was cool that like we actually got a underwater story without Namor, like which is shocking. Yeah. But uh, I just yeah, the Atlanteans is they never did anything for me. I always kind of found them to be generic characters, so I, I wasn't too crazy about this. But I think they were just trying to show that uh, Rhodey could hold his own with another, uh, you know, fairly credible villain from the wider Marvel Universe. You probably have the same reaction at these guys as I do when I see a Klingon episode of Star Star Trek. <laughs> There's only so many stories you can tell about Atlanteans finding uh, stuff buried that's dangerous. <laughs> but um, they do actually get rid of all the armors. So uh, I think uh, was it Morley Irwin uh, sends them up. Uh, the Atlanteans are wearing the armor and uh, he shoots them up into the sky where they where they would suffocate unless they get rid of them. So that, I thought that was kind of cool. Right. Yeah, I always find it funny that this this kind of stuff happens all the time. They blow up all the armors, but then the next writer who comes in shows at some point Iron Man fighting all of his old armors of the past. So where did they come from? He, he just rebuilds <laughs> models of his old armors just so he can keep them in glass cases in his... Uh, in his mansion or yeah. something. He seems like a like a very sentimental person. Like he's uh, yeah. he's burning the pictures of his ex girlfriends, but he secretly like photocopied them. So they're <laughs> <laughs> yep. Oh yeah, let's move on to number one seventy six. This one's called Turf, and uh, I really liked this story. I thought it was a really neat kind of a sci fi, like an eighties sci fi story. Um, that's unlike anything else we've seen in this volume. Where he meets a uh, this big monster underground that has ESP, um, which is I guess the the 80s way of saying telepathy. And uh, he he's a uh, guardian of this vortex, and he's trying to just um, stand guard so that uh, it, these aliens don't come in and invade the planet or something like that, and and. Rhodey has to figure out a way to um, to help out this guardian that's been there, I guess, since the beginning of time um, to keep these aliens from coming through. It's, it, I, I liked it. It does seem kind of out of place in the larger context of the story, but I thought it was a really good issue still. Yeah, I think uh, me and you might have uh, conflicting opinions then on this one. <laughs> this really? One <laughs> okay. this, this was actually... Uh, my least favorite issue out of out of the entire run, and not and not because it's bad, just because it, it is so out of place. Um, yeah, we find out place. that uh, when when uh, when Rhodey as Iron Man uh, rescued Indris uh, a couple issues back, there was some kind of weird energy reading or uh, something like that that his armor picked up. And at first, I thought it was a. Uh, the moms or whatever from the first issue that we went over. So oh, I'm like, yeah. all right, cool, sweet. <laughs> but uh, it turns out it was, um, uh, you know, this giant underground creature vortex or whatever. And it just, it, it just, it really does feel very, very out of place with, uh, with everything else uh, in this volume. 
So would you like this issue if it were like a Silver Surfer issue? Uh, yeah, possibly. Because, yeah, just like, I mean, yeah, like I was saying, too, it's, it's not bad. It's just, it, it's just, it's very strange. And it, it kind of, it, it, interu- it interrupts the flow of, um, of the storyline, I think. Like, if, if I was picking this up monthly and, um, and I had to read this issue, I'd kind of be like, oh, man, I got to wait another month then to find out what's going on. <laughs> Which is weird right. because it's not a fill in. Another issue where they're just trying to show, uh, Rhodey, you know, p- picking up the, the slack that Tony left behind. Well, we can move on to our final issue of this volume. It's 177. Um, it's kind of a nice end to the volume uh, with uh, some great themes of Rhodey not doing things the way that Tony was uh, would do them. Yeah, um, I really dug the, the opening scene. Uh, he's kind of just running some various tests on the armor. And uh, you see Rhodey just laying there, and he has like a giant, uh, what was it, like a bulldozer or yeah. some kind of construction <laughs> vehicle, just run him over. He's like, "Oh, I'm good. Keep going." <laughs> it's... Yeah, so yeah. That, that was a, that was a pretty interesting uh, scene. I also like the um, the Power Man and Iron Fist cameo here, because you gotta fund, gotta gotta fund his armor somehow. So he goes to Power Man and Iron Fist to see if they have a job that will pay him a big sum of money um, because, you know, they're the heroes for hire. So uh, that was yeah. an interesting thing as well. Yeah, he's basically just, uh, he's taken on mercenary work here. So he goes to, uh, like, a South American jungle and uh, he fights uh, the Flying Tiger. And um, I think he made a couple appearances before this. Was he a, was he a Spider-Woman villain, I, th- I want to say? Oh, could be. He's out there as far as like the obscure villains go. Yeah, and uh, he, he's one of those guys that like you see like um like a Fabian Nicieza or something bring up like uh, when he needs to use some random villain for like uh, somebody's you know villain army. Like <laughs> he always has like a sweet spot for those kind of forgotten characters. So another thing that I liked was that uh you you really see um the Irwins uh, Morley and Cly uh you know they're becoming really close with uh Rhodey so they're all kind of in this together as far as learning what the armor can do and um since there's no more Stark Stark uh, Industries or Stark International uh they consider starting up their own company uh Circuits Maximus and um that plays a pretty big role in uh what's to come after this volume that's cool I'm glad that uh I like this trio and I think that it'll like we were talking at the, at the beginning how there was really kind of no supporting cast um, so to have these three people together I think is going to be a nice a nice setup for the next volume yeah definitely they they complement Rhodey well because you know like I said they're all learning together and um, that's kind of a mark of uh, like I was I was saying earlier how um, a supporting cast is generally uh, the mark of like a specific writer um, writers, you know, writers have to use, you know, the main characters. You know, I know he switched Iron Man in this one, but you know what I mean. They have to use the main characters, but the supporting cast they usually kind of, that always changes depending on who's writing the book. And um, I don't want to spoil things too much, but yeah, they're they're a pretty big part of this entire uh, Denny O'Neill run. Awesome. Well, um, what are your general opinions on this volume as a whole after we've uh, gone through all these issues? Uh, very very strong start uh, to the epic program. Um, I think I was reading like a lot of people didn't like how uh, 
the volume ended on like a not really a cliffhanger but like not a natural ending point and um that that that's like a criticism i i don't really understand just because these when these comics were being made like 30 years ago they weren't being made for uh you know collections that were going to be taking place like you know 30 years down the line they were just meant to be monthly comics like they they were never meant to have like a specific break point like uh yeah. like comics nowadays so exactly i had didn't no have a typical arc yeah i i thought i thought they did a pretty good job like uh you know they stop um tony's you know he's uh he's out hanging out with bums and stuff now so he's just he's completely off off the radar and uh roadie's learning and uh yeah it was, it was a good end point i think a lot of those reactions were just uh partly because of um how new the epic collection was and not understanding completely the or realizing what this um release the release schedule implications would be right people are like oh, i'm gonna have to wait a couple years before i find out the conclusion of the story but um that's uh yeah that's just kind of part of it and people expect that now we didn't have to wait that long like i think of uh, the next volume is duel of iron and that's uh i'm looking at um, my wall right here that's volume 11 and that came out like within a couple years like a year and a half or so of the first volume and then there were right. some other iron man sprinkled in in between so yeah yes yeah, and I think they're smart with the release schedule um, by giving the follow-up volume uh, in a timely fashion rather than waiting for, you know, eight years from now to release. Sure. It. Yep. Well, if you, if any of you listeners want to uh, correct any of our errors or give us any comments or feedback, we'd be more than welcome to uh, to, uh, to hear them. You can send emails to epicmarvelpodcast at gmail.com. Um, yeah, and in the next issue or in the next episode i'll be joined with by another co-host craig who will be talking about the very first thor volume that was released in the epic collection which is called war of the pantheons um the classic uh, defalco and friends run we'll yeah james this was a, a real treat talking to you i had a lot of fun talking about these issues and and kind of going in deep and and uh experiencing it for the first time for me so thanks for joining me oh you're welcome this is uh yeah this was this has been a blast this whole uh the entire epic thing it's kind of rekindled my love for comics so i'm excited to start the podcast awesome well we will uh catch you the next time you're on the show and uh for all you listeners we'll see you next time all right bye-bye